Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 10 in our 2 Corinthians Bible Study podcast. This episode is entitled, Sowing Generously, Reaping Eternally, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1-15. through 15. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? Well, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 um, provide a, a couple of chapters that, that lay the foundation for Christian giving. There's mm-hmm. so many principles we saw last time in chapter 8, and now here again in chapter 9 as Paul finishes his appeal to the Corinthians to finish their uh, donation to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. He wants them to finish what they have promised to do, but he gives them lots of inducements. And those inducements, um, though immediately occasioned by that circumstance, is of timeless benefit. Twenty centuries of Christians have read these words and have learned about Christian giving. And the basic idea is um, that if we sow generously, we're going to reap generously, not just in this life, but for all eternity. So it's going to be exciting to walk through that. Well, let's pick up our reading in verse 1 of chapter 9 in 2 Corinthians. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, We would be humiliated, to say nothing of you, for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which Through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Andy, what's the connection between chapter 9 and chapter 8? Why does Paul say he has no need to write to them about this? Well, the connection between chapter 8 and 9, remember there weren't chapter divisions when Paul first wrote his epistle, and they come in later, and they're very useful to us, but they can also sometimes get in the way of a sense of a, of a kind of a flow of argument, the fact that we're really not opening a new topic here um, is it's continuing on. And so the idea here is of a 
uh, an uh, offering that the churches, the Gentile churches in, in Greece and in Macedonia, et cetera, were making for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, as he describes it um, in other places, especially in Romans 15. And so he has already kind of uh, appealed to them in chapter 8, and he's continuing his appeal here in chapter 9. And he says here at the beginning there's no need for him to write about it because um, everybody already knows about their eagerness. Their eagerness was established right at the start. They spoke openly and boldly and clearly about their desire um, to share, and so that's well known. So when he says things like, I have no need to write about X, but then goes on and writes about X, it's just <laughs> it's what we call rhetorical technique. But what he's saying is that everyone knows about your willingness, and now he wants them to complete it by actually giving. How had Paul used the Corinthians' initial eagerness to help in this offering for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to stimulate others to give as well. Well, he told the story. I mean, he would go to other churches and say, look, I've already been to Corinth and uh, it wasn't time yet uh, to take the offering. But they said, look, when that time comes, we'll be ready. We're, we're going to be there with bells on. We're, we will give, 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 give. We're excited about this. Paul said, great, great. So he went off without the money because it wasn't time yet, but went out with the stories. And he goes up to Macedonia and they're like, wow, the Corinthians are ready to give. Well, it seems like a great cause. We'll give. But what he says is, look, if we circle back and come back to you and actually some of those people are there and and they've given the money and you're like, oh, yeah, what what was that now? Uh, you know, oh, right, right. And you're unprepared. Hmm. That he hmm. said, we're going to be ashamed. That's going to be a bad moment. So he's writing this section of his epistle to forestall that bad outcome. He's saying, look, uh, this letter's going ahead of me. We're showing up soon. You better be ready. Yeah, basically saying, look, you've been an encouragement. Now follow through. You, you actually have to do through. what you said you would do. That's yeah, good. it's not enough to say you have to do. Yeah. So you can go out there and make all kinds of promises, but the fact is, what did you actually do? Now, you touched on this uh, just in what you just shared, but why would the Corinthians' unpreparedness be such a source of humility, not only for them, right, for the Corinthians, but for Paul and his team? In verses 3 and 4, he outlines sure. some of that. Well, he's he's concerned about this um, because he doesn't want the their, their boasting about the Corinthians to prove empty said, look, um, we, we said these great things about you, but now our credibility is on the line. Mm. We have vouched for you, and people trusted what we said about you. And so that would be a shameful thing. And so I think one of the things that comes up often in Paul's epistle, epistles and, and actually in many places is the tremendous power of public shaming. Mm. It really is the, uh, the stinger in church discipline. Uh, you know, We don't believe in any kind of corporal punishments or, or even death as some the medieval Roman Catholic Church did during the Inquisition, things like that. None of that's biblical. That's not taught. But in the New Testament, the the stinger of church discipline is public shame. Uh, but even aside from church discipline, shame is a very powerful factor. And what he's saying is, look, I'm telling you, you're going to be ashamed. If we show up and you're not ready and you don't give much, uh, I'm going to be ashamed, and so are you. And so I'm really I'm writing this ahead of time to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, it's such a powerful thing too, the consistency between uh, words and actions. And I think mm -hmm. that's a consistent theme for us as Christians, right? That what we say would match how we live, and Paul is seeking to urge them to be consistent in that regard. Exactly. And so he's sending the brothers ahead of time, which we met in chapter 8. We don't know who they are. They're unnamed. But he's sending these co-laborers, these trustworthy men, mm. ahead as kind of precursors to say look let's let's get let's put 
put, put the rubber where the rubber meets the road here. Let's let's make this happen. And so all of the plans, all of the intentions, uh, all of the great statements of purpose, that all needs to come to fruition now. And so actual arrangements have to be made. Now, back in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, he said, this is my advice to you that you set aside some money at the first every week hmm. so that when I come, the uh, amount will be suitable. It'll be a big amount. And second of all, it won't be hastily thrown together, much to our embarrassment. It'll be something, no, we've been, we've been planning on this for a year now. We got the money set aside here. We're ready to go. Yeah. So Andy, let's make some practical application of that as we look at verse five, where he's basically saying, this is what those brothers are coming to do. They're coming to encourage you so that you do this with the right attitude, so that they're not dragging it out of you, so to speak. Uh, How does planning and preparation in giving produce better results, both in amount and in attitude? Right. That's a very good question. And, And I think it's even aside from Christian giving, just finances in general, uh, like one, uh, expert said, uh, in terms of a budget, a budget is telling your money where to go, not wondering where it went. <laughs> and so the idea is you're being intentional. You're making a plan. This is our income. This is what we have to work with. Mm. This is how we're going to spend it. And so uh, Paul says that your giving is going to be in proportion to what you do have, not what you do not have. So look at what you do have. Be a steward. Be aware of it and be intentional. And so the idea is you have. there are logistics to all of this. There's intentionality. That's why 1 Corinthians 16 is so important. This is my advice concerning this matter. On the first day of every week, set aside each member of the church mm. should set aside a certain sum in keeping with his income so that... That when I come, the the uh, offering will be suitable and proportional, not something hastily thrown together. So what I would say is in Christian giving, which is what these two chapters are about, that we need to be intentional, purposeful, intelligent. We need to make a plan and stick with it. So in our church, uh, our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, we have something called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering, and that uh, goes to uh, to fund missions. It's uh, about 60% of the annual missions budget of the International Mission Board of the Southern mm-hmm. Baptist. Well, we, we definitely emphasize it in December, but I think it's more effective if people are aware of it and think about it all year long. Mm. And so they begin planning in January and February and March for what they're going to give in December. The It's always a Christmas offering, but that you're thinking about it in July, August, and, and September instead of um, just throwing it together at the end. Inevitably, you're going to give more sure, because you had more along uh, the entire year than just something you throw together at the end of the year. So intentionality, purpose, prayerfulness, asking God what it is you want me to give, mm. all of that that's essential to a healthy life of Christian giving. Yeah, I love that. Telling our money where to go, not wondering where it went. <laughs> where it went. Yeah. <laughs> now, verse six starts interestingly. It says, the point is this. So I feel like that ought to make mm-hmm. us perk up and pay attention to what comes next. What does it mean to sow sparingly? Mm-hmm. And what causes us to do that with our money as well as with our time and energy, other resources the Lord's given us? So much of the New Testament's teaching, especially by way of illustration, is agricultural because a lot of them are farmers. And so uh, I'm not a farmer. Uh, I've proven that. Uh, I've actually uh, sowed and uh, and reaped nothing. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm, we're, we're not really good at it, but others are. I guess the idea is imagine you were a farmer and you had, you know, many, many acres of, uh, of fields and maybe even prepared the field. You went out there and broke up the soil and plowed it and got all the earth ready and all that. And you, and you have you know, 10 sacks of, of prime seed, but you go take a little cup and scoop it out and you dribble out 
a few seeds here and there and then call it a day. Well, guess what? In a number of months, your harvest is going to be very meek. It's going to be little. It's going to be small. And so if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. The idea is it's in proportion. So if you want to if you want to reap an abundant harvest, you have to sow broadly. Uh, you have to sow generously. That's the point Paul's making in verse 6. Yeah, and we use an image like that. It, it's helpful because I think it makes us aware of how silly it seems if you've got those 10 sacks of prime seed to take that little cup and, and dribble it around. What would cause us to look at our money and time and energy and resources that way? Because it seems silly when we put it in that kind of language. Right. Well, fundamentally, I think it's covetousness. It's mm. idolatry. We are in love with our money. We're in love with ourselves. We're in love with what money can do for us, and we're selfish. And so we have uh, you know, enough to meet our needs and, and, and to spare. We've got plenty of extra but we end up being very selfish and, mm. and it ends up being a very very much a mark of sanctification, perhaps even of salvation. Uh, you remember the story of Zacchaeus, the, the chief tax collector who repented of his sins and of all of his predatory approach to his own people, just taking um, huge amounts of tax money even beyond what the people owed and making himself very wealthy. And he had defrauded people. Uh, but when he came to faith in Christ, he turned away from money as his God mm. and turned to Christ. And he started giving it away, giving it back, making reparations, fourfold even. Um, and so he wasn't in love with money anymore. So we sow sparingly because we're in love with our money. We're in love with ourselves. We're not generous. And mm. all of us struggle with this. I know it's something that I struggle with as well. So the idea here is that my heart would be expanded by a vision of heaven. Mm. Uh, ultimately, that we see money from a heavenly perspective. We see our relationships with other people from a heavenly perspective. The sowing generously so that we can reap generously is not just in this world, but for all eternity. It really has to do with how much reward we want to get. But there's also many earthly benefits as well as Paul describes. Yeah, and Jesus said in Luke 9, 24 as well that if you save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll save it. How might that relate to this idea of sowing sparingly? And perhaps how does this even relate to our life as Christians and our stewardship of the gospel? Yeah, I think what happens is it's a matter of self-salvation. We are protecting mm. ourselves and saving ourselves by our own means, and money is one of the primary means. Like in the book of Proverbs, it says, "It says the riches of a rich man are a strong tower, uh, and, he, and he imagines it to keep him safe. And so the idea is that money ends up being this, this fortress that protects you against all of life's exigencies, different things that come along the way. Mm. And so it can protect you, but it really can't. Um, the fact is that money is very t transitory. Again, as Proverbs says, cast but a glance at riches and they fly away. They sprout wings and fly. They're gone. And so the concept here is that we should trust God for the future. Uh, and I, I, again, it's a challenge to know. It's a matter of wisdom to know. If we have food, clothing, and shelter, if we have finances for that, we are blessed. Anything beyond that is an abundance now, we Americans are so far beyond food, clothing, and shelter. Mm. Uh, we have been lavishly blessed, not because we're such great people, but uh, like in the parable of the rich fool who tore down his barns to build bigger barns, imagining himself to have many years to come. And he was called a fool because that very night his soul would be required of him. Um, it says concerning that his wealth came from his soil. The soil of a certain rich man produced an abundant harvest. Mm. Not because he was a great man. It's just because he was providentially blessed. So once you have more than you need for food, clothing, and shelter, you have a decision to make. Mm. And there are, there are basically only two 
good things you can do with the surplus. You can save it for your own future uh, needs or you can give it away by the power of the Spirit in a wise way. Those are the two good things you can do, like the, the go to the ant you sluggard, it stores up in summer for the winter months. It is good for Christians to have a certain amount of money saved up for the future, for retirement, for medical needs, for other things that may come up. Mm. Um, but whatever we shouldn't save for our own future, we should give away. The question is how much? Mm. So it's it's really just two categories, isn't it? I mean, it's basically in the giving away you could give to your church or to Christian missions or to the poor and needy or whatever, but it's still giving it away, Christian giving or Christian saving. Those are your two options. Is it 20-80, 50-50? Who knows? Mm -hmm. And we really shouldn't judge other people for it, but just be aware. You need to be certain that what you're doing with your surplus is right. So that's the idea here is that we go to God, we give ourselves to God, we dedicate everything we have to him. It's all his anyway. Mm -hmm. We ask God, give me wisdom. How much should we save for ourselves for the future and how much should we give away? Yeah, you mentioned a theme that we'll get to toward the end of this chapter that's repeated again and again, just this idea of thanksgiving, thankfulness, you know, that what flows out of giving is a particular attitude. So amount is important, but also our heart posture toward the act of giving and participating yeah. in what God has called us to is important too. And we see that in verse seven. Mm -hmm. What is it that God loves about a cheerful giver? Perhaps one of the best known oh, you know, yeah. phrases in this passage we're looking at. God loves a cheerful giver. I think the implication is that God doesn't love a giver. <laughs> mm. And then he, say, he had said in verse five, then the gift will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Hmm. Look, listen, who wants to get a gift grudgingly given? I mean, that's horrible. Like, I hope you realize how much this birthday gift cost. I mean, you do realize. <laughs> I mean, usually my budget is such and such, but I spent more than that on you. Well, here you go. Happy birthdays. Like, I don't want that gift. What? Who would? <laughs> well, it reminds me of that, um, that warning in the book of Proverbs where mm -hmm. it says, uh, don't go eat with a stingy rich man because the whole time that you're eating, he's thinking what it costs. And he says, you will have wasted all of your compliments. You know, it's like, <laughs> he like, doesn't yeah, care, fine, care it about- It costs me a lot to feed you, you know? Exactly. So I think one of the most fundamental, shocking statements on this whole thing on Christian love in 1 Corinthians 13, verse three, it says, if I, if I give all I possess to the poor, everything, mm and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Hmm. It's like, wait a minute, Here's the, this guy didn't, didn't save anything for his own future. He gave everything away, he gets nothing. Hmm. Why? Well, I think it goes to first, uh, 2 Corinthians 9. It was given grudgingly. Yeah. It wasn't given cheerfully. There wasn't a heart of love behind it. Mm -hmm. He had not love. He didn't love the person he was giving it to. It was like that. I hope you realize what I'm doing for hmm. you here. So there's a, I think that's why I, I think it's important that we realize, you know, when they say love is an action, love is an action. Mm -hmm. Well, that's only partially true biblically because there in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, he did the actions to the nth degree. Mm -hmm. he, he did the best possible actions you could ever, ever do, yeah. but he had not love. So apparently love is not only an action. But in 1 John, if you say, oh, I love you, I have such warm feelings for you, and you see your brother in need, and he's out in the cold, and it's like, go, brother, be warm and be filled, and you do nothing. James says, faith without deeds is dead, all of this sort of stuff, then love is an action. Hmm. So it's not either or, it's both and. Love is both 
a heart sentiment, a heart mm-hmm. attraction that leads to cheerful, sac- sacrificial action. The word cheerful comes right from this text. Yeah. So the idea is you have to delight in giving. And why would you do that? Well, you do it uh, for the benefit that it does to the other person, for the benefit it, it does to the kingdom of God, but you also do it for yourself because you're going to reap an abundant and eternal harvest. Jesus said, when you give a banquet, don't invite all your rich friends because they're gonna invite you to their homes and you'll be paid back. Mm. But invite the poor and needy and all these people who can never repay you, though they are not able to repay you, Jesus said, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Mm. That's reward language. So the idea is you should be cheerful and happy because of the benefit it gives to others for the way it glorifies God, because God loves a cheerful giver, it says. God loves that. So I'm making God happy. But then I'm also storing up treasure for myself in heaven. You know, Andy, it's striking that in that, I think giving can also be a picture of the gospel. You think about Mm -hmm. God's lavish generosity toward us when it was undeserved and we couldn't pay him back. How can we see the Father and the Son and the Spirit act in Scripture as cheerful givers? Beautiful theme. Thank you. I didn't see that coming. That's good. All right. So Jesus, Hebrews 12 says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning and shame. Mm. Uh, He had said about the father, uh, he said, fear not, little flock, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Mm. In other words, he really enjoys doing this. He enjoys saving people. He celebrates in the parable of the the lost sheep and and the lost coin and the lost son, the three parables in the gospel of Luke. It's always celebration. There's this big celebration. God really enjoys it. Mm. And so the idea here is that God is a cheerful giver. He loves all of these things. He loved giving his son, his only son for us so that we might have forgiveness. He was delighted in it. No, he didn't love the fact that he had to pour out his wrath on his son. He he endured the cross like Jesus endured the cross, despising and shame, but he looked ahead to what it could do and loved that. Mm. So the vision of a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nation standing before the throne, forgiven and praising God for all eternity, God loves that. Mm. That's a happy thing for him. So God is a cheerful giver. So it's good for us then to image that in the way that we live as Christians. Absolutely. So the inverse of that, though, would would be a pretty dark and negative thing, right? Reluctantly or compulsory uh, in our giving. Uh, What might motivate someone to give that way, reluctantly or under compulsion? And why is that such a bad way for us to give? It is a bad way. Um, One of the things that would, but thank God that the New Testament's not written this way, is a bunch of laws on Christian giving. There aren't Mm. any. That's why I don't. I resist the whole tithing um, theme. Tithing was an Old Testament principle. It had to do with the theocracy and the promised land in Israel. It was like their taxes, things like that. So I would say we don't really look to the tithe. Mm. We look to the principles here. Cheerful, generous, lavish giving, proportion to your income, um, beyond what you um, need for food, clothing, and shelter. That's what we're starting to look at there. There's your. There's what you can give out of. Um, all of that kind of language just gives us principles mm. by which we do our Christian giving. Um, so if we're doing it reluctantly and under compulsion, we've not thought at all about those positive themes we just described, which is the benefit it's doing to our brothers and sisters, the way it's drawing the body together in a cheerful celebration of thankfulness, which we'll discuss at the end of this chapter. Um, you know, the fact that it pleases God and makes God happy, none of that means anything to this person. Mm. It's like, well, what does make you happy, brother? I mean, you're reluctant here and under compulsion and grumpy. 
I think the fact is that money's an idol mm. and idols die hard. Idols die miserably. <laughs> yeah. So you look at the rich young ruler, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He couldn't give it up. So the reluctant and compulsion, I, another word that pops in my mind here is legalism. So if you're in a church that's teaching legalistically about the giving, um, you're going to feel forced. Yeah. It's like to be a member in good standing. Um, you're giving reluctantly and under compulsion. And what a shame that that would become burdensome rather yeah. than a delightful act of worship to acknowledge God as the giver and then freely give back to him. Right. Also, there's a basic problem, too, that you tend to forget that God doesn't need your money at all. Hmm. It, as, as though God himself needed anything. He doesn't need anything from us. Um, he doesn't need your money. You know, it's, this is Psalm 50. He says, look, I don't need a sacrifice from you. First of all, I don't eat the flesh of bulls. <laughs> And if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because I actually own the cattle on a thousand hills. That's basically he's putting Israel's giving in perspective. I don't need you mm. to give. So uh, when we give reluctantly and under compulsion, it's like, well, God's pretty needy here, et cetera. Now, verses 8 through 11 unpack some of the promises that come along with uh, this idea of giving generously and cheerfully. How does the promise that God is able to make all grace abound so that you may abound in every good work relate to our Christian giving? And how would generosity in financial giving increase our fruitfulness in other areas of the Christian life? Well, those are great questions. I think the implication here is that God is able to make all grace abound to you, is that if you can take a faith step and give generously and sacrificially, you're going to find yourself growing a lot in mm -hmm. the Christian life. You're mm -hmm. going to start giving in other areas, giving more of your time and of your effort and of, of yourself, of your heart. Um, you're going to grow and, and, and minister. Conversely, if you are stingy, if you hold back, your Christian growth is going to be truncated. And so God is going to make all grace abound to you. He's going to pour out spiritual blessings on you. You're going to become a more generous person. You're going to become a less worldly person. You're going to become a less idolatrous uh, person. You're going to be living more for heaven than for earth than you ever were before, and many other blessings of grace. So God is able to make all this grace abound to you, and you're going to be able to do more and more good works. I think one of the things he's going to do is give you more material blessings. Hmm. If you are found to be faithful and generous with money, he'll give you a lot more money because you are a pipeline, a conduit without any blockage. Hmm. No siphon, it's not going off into a little stagnant pool somewhere. He sees that you're faithful, he'll give you more. Hmm. He who is faithful in little will be faithful with much, with even more. So God is gonna give you more money because you're going to give it away. I remember the story about R.G. Letourneau, who is uh, uh, the owner of a very uh, successful company in the mid 20th century, early 20th century and mid 20th century of earth moving equipment, these big, huge, massive trucks, you know, with the tires that mm. were as big as a house, you know, these kind of things. He was used in World War II to, to help with the war effort, uh, et cetera, and then made a ton of money. He was the guy that, I don't know anyone else that did this, but gave a reverse tithe. He mm. kept 10% and gave 90% away. Wow. Well, you can do that when you're rich, okay? You know, <laughs> you can live off 10%. The 10% will yeah, cover it. Yeah, it will cover it. Food, clothing, shelter. <laughs> but he said, like using the analogy of his own business, he said, you know, I give it away as fast as I can, but I can't outgive God. The more I give away, the more he gives me. You know, God has a bigger shovel than I do. And mm. so that's a principle is that when you're found to be faithful and give it away, God may lavishly bless your business so that you can be generous to others. It's basically what he says here, mm. the rest of this chapter. Now, how does the quote of Psalm 112 verse 9 fit into Paul's persuasion here? 
He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. I think it just shows God being a generous giver. God um, lavishly um, spreads gifts around. And so the idea here is that if you are found to be a, a, a conduit, a pipeline without any blockage, he will lavishly give you opportunities to scatter his gifts to the poor and needy. Um, and his, it, this is a righteous thing. So that, it's just a beautiful, I think it, he chose Psalm 112 verse 9 because it shows God being generous to the poor. Mm. Now, Paul expands the agricultural analogy in verse 10, saying that when we scatter seed, we'll have mm-hmm. both seed to sow and bread for food. Mm-hmm. How should this encourage us to give? Yeah, I mean, the the amazing thing is that, you know, you have this big harvest and you can take a portion of it for the next year's harvest. You know, the seed for next year's harvest is right there. Um, but you also can grind some of it um, f- to make bread. And so you have enough for yourself and you have enough to give away. And so that's the idea here is that your own needs are met, um, but also you will have increased opportunities. He says he will supply and increase your store of seed. Mm. And so uh, you'll have more opportunities. As I said, when you're found to be generous, you'll have more opportunities to give. And then your harvest will be bigger and bigger. So it's, again, like the parable of the seed and the soils. Uh, the good soil um, resulted in a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. The idea is you might move up to a quantum level of giving beyond 30 up to 60 and beyond 60 even up to 100. God's going to make you more and more generous and therefore very rich on judgment day and for all eternity. All right, so let's talk about that. What is a harvest of righteousness? How does it relate to Christian giving? And what kind of rewards should motivate Christians to give generously? Well, first of all, I think the harvest of righteousness is in your own life. You will become more like Christ. Mm -hmm. You will become a more righteous person. You're not an idolater. You're not stingy. Uh, So that's a harvest of your own righteousness. And then there's a harvest of righteousness for others. Like people are led to faith in Christ in part because of money given to missionaries and other people. Uh, People come to faith in Christ. So there's a harvest of people who have been brought into the righteousness of the gospel through Mm -hmm. faith in Christ. And you had a role in that. Um, So it's a harvest of your righteousness. Mm -hmm. Um, And then beyond that, there is a clear implication of of eternal rewards in heaven, as we've already mentioned, that you are going to have treasure in heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 6 plainly, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven. And Christian giving is a good way to store up treasure in heaven. Now, what causes some people to misunderstand verse 11 as teaching the prosperity gospel, that if we give generously, we'll become financially rich? And if it's not teaching that, what do you think verse 11 is actually promising? Well, it's very sad because it's close to the truth. Uh, As I've already said, that if you're found to be a conduit of financial blessing, God's going to give you more money. That's literal physical money. And with that more money, you have more opportunity to give. As Randy Alcorn said, uh, God increases your income not to improve your standard of living, but your standard of giving. Hmm. And so if you're faithful with that, he'll do it even more. You could actually accelerate. Well, what the prosperity teachers do is, first of all, they fundamentally make money the goal. Mm. So, you know, Jesus isn't the goal money is. He's the God. Money is the God. Mm. And so the idea is if you give it away, a faith promise kind of thing, you're going to get money back. That's the goal is money. And that's not the goal. Money is always a means to an end. Mm. It's a means to 
your own survival mm -hmm. and it's a means to your generosity and other people's survival, et cetera. It's never a means to an end. So that's a very sad misunderstanding. What the text says, you'll be made rich in every way so you can be generous in every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Mm. Basically, you're gonna be a rich person and I mean spiritually rich. Uh, you're going to be lavishly conformed to God and his love, his generosity, his otherworldliness, his heavenly mindedness. Jesus thinking about that all the time. You'll be just like Christ. So that's how you'll be rich. And you may even be materially, um, your income may be very, very high so that you can give much away. Yeah, it's such a mindset shift, I think, from even what our world would put before us as what to do with any excess, right? We think mm -hmm. you get a promotion, you get more money, and immediately yeah. our thoughts go to, what house can I buy? Or, yeah. or how can I upgrade my car? And some of those things may be necessary, but sometimes that's just the deception of riches that keeps us from thinking, wait a second, how might I use this uh, strategically for the advance of the gospel to bless the ministries that God has put before me to give to or to serve someone who's in need? How can I use these things in a way that glorifies God? Yeah, it's, it's a big challenge. I think it's one of the greatest challenges that we have because we live in a prosperous place in the world and yeah. we have far more than we need. In verse 12, Paul explains that Christian giving serves to supply the needs of the saints and overflow in many thanksgivings to God. We've mm -hmm. talked about this briefly already. Yeah. How does our generosity cause thanksgiving to overflow to God, and how can this be an excellent and pure motive for giving, especially as we think about verses 12 and 13 here? Yeah, I think what's happening here at the very end of this chapter is one of the results of Christian giving is everyone is banded together, brought together into a vertical um, thankfulness to God. They, they mm -hmm. just look up and just are so thankful to God. So imagine um, one of those poor families among the saints in Jerusalem and money arrives from these Gentile churches in Macedonia or in Corinth even. Mm. And Paul and these messengers come and say, I want you to realize where this money came from. It's a result of the gospel. Hmm. Uh, we're brothers and sisters in Christ together and they just want to share with you their material benefits. And you're like weeping. And you're, you're just so thankful and you just get on your knees and thank God and just thankfulness flows up to God. And so it's just an amazing thing, meditating on thankfulness. Why does God want to be thanked? Is he, is he some craven, needy being that just needs to be thanked all the time? No, mm. it's because it is healthy for us to realize that God is the source of every blessing we have. That's just right and healthy. God doesn't need anything from us. Mm. He doesn't need our thanksgiving, but we need to thank him. And so it is a sweet, wonderful thing to go back to God with a happy, upward look and say, thank you, God, for meeting this need. How can recipients of the financial blessing turn and bless the givers? Verse 14 seems like it might speak to this. Yeah. Well, I think the idea here is I think you, you do thank God, and you should, and everything's ultimately, ultimately from him. But it's also immediately from others. People gave. Somebody gave. And so it is right for us to look horizontally at the giver and mm. say, thank you. Mm. Thank you for what you did. And for the giver to be humble and say, look, the Lord gave us the money and he meant it for you. And, and all that's true, but still you gave it. Mm. Uh, even in that terrible story of Ananias and Sapphira, Peter says very plainly, didn't the field belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money yours to do with as you saw fit? So he found fault with their lying. Um, he said, look, you weren't under compulsion here. We weren't requiring everyone to give. Now, everyone was giving and you would have been the only one not to give. But um, 
still lying was wrong and right. they were struck dead because of their lying. But mm. the point is made. It was theirs. The field was theirs. Mm. The money was theirs. So there is a vertical aspect of everything is God's. Yeah, well, just because everything is God's doesn't mean I can't go down and find a car that I like that would be really cool, a convertible, you know, like a sports car or something like that, and just get in and drive it. Because God owns everything, right? <laughs> and he's my father. It's like, well, that's called Grand Theft Auto. All right? That's <laughs> just, just not okay. The convertible. <laughs> you can't just take the convertible. There is the Ten Commandments, and one of the commandments against stealing implies personal ownership. Hmm. It does belong to another person. And when that person says it was mine and now it's yours, hmm. I've given it to you. That's a gift. Yeah. And you should say thank you. Hmm. That's good. <laughs> That's good. Why is Paul's Thanksgiving here a fitting conclusion to his teaching on giving? His conclusion here in verse 15. And, and what final thoughts do you have for us just based on what we've talked about in chapter 8, chapter 9, rich passages for us hmm. to consider Christian giving. So many good things going on in these two chapters. And uh, I love these last four or five verses, which show all this kind of energy, all this unity, this this horizontal stuff going on from brother to brother and group to group, and then all of it looking up to God and thanking him. And there's all this, this incredible grace flowing in this. And it's like, a, it's, a, it's alive. It crackles with life. And there's, there's just life going on here. And he's just like, I just amazed at this. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And I think ultimately that must refer to Christ. Mm -hmm. Jesus enables us to give. And so because Jesus shed his blood, then all of this Christian giving is possible. And so mm -hmm. just thanks be to God for the gift of Jesus. Well, thanks, Andy. This has been episode 10 in our Second Corinthians Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 11, entitled Paul Defends His Ministry, where we'll discuss Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.